you always have to be evolving. You always have to be growing in some way because businesses are like living organisms. If you're not in growth, you're in decay. You're in decay. One Path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome to the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, a close personal friend of mine, someone I've looked up to for a very long time in the commercial real estate business, founder and CEO of Continental Properties, Jim Schlamer, based out of Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Continental Properties is a nationwide housing developer and provider. Under Jim's leadership, over 30,000 apartment homes have been developed and 18,000 homes currently owned and operated. In addition to having been very historically active in the uh, retail space, Jim has truly made an impact in the real estate industry, not only through development, but also through the National Multifamily Housing Council, serving as the chair of the Government Affairs and Political Action Committee, meeting with both Congress and Senate, in addition to testifying before Congress as an advocate for housing providers across the country. In addition to the impact in the real estate industry, Jim has also made a philanthropic impact as board chairman of Whole Child International Let's give a warm welcome to my good friend, Jim Schlamer. Jim, thank you for being here with me today. Good morning, Kyle. It's great to be here. It's always great to see you. I was thinking, I was like, man, when or how did I meet Jim? And if I had to guess, I'm pretty confident, is when one of my brothers got drafted by the Packers, I started going to Wisconsin a lot and and to go watch games. I think this was before I had kids, so my weekends were still pretty free. And I said, well, if I'm in the state, I might as well call some of the most active real estate owners and developers and I think I gave Steve Wagner a call, I want to say. I probably cold called him on a building, somehow got in touch with him. And Steve being Steve was kind enough to take the call and agree to meet. And he's like, hey, why don't you come meet us at our office in Menominee Falls? I think that's where I met you. That's right. I remember it well. And Steve was is a longtime season ticket holder in Green Bay. Yeah. And so he was uh, kind of starstruck when... Uh, he got to meet one of the Matthews legacy <laughs> you know, family not, not members. Not me, not me. Definitely the family <laughs> member. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the toughest cold call I ever made. That's for sure. Uh, the uh, the Packers fans are are very kind. I actually was, uh, as I told you, I was up there yesterday fishing on the Great Lakes. Caught some big salmon, some big trout, and it's a it's a wonderful place. And um, so blessed to have been able to spend time in the state of Wisconsin because I, you know, I, I hadn't really spent time there beforehand. But but that's your home. It is. It's a, it's a great place to start a business, raise a family, but it's a good place to be based out of. There isn't enough business to operate solely within the, the state borders. That's right. And we'll get to all that. I just, for the audience sake, talk to, talk to us about continental properties. Just give us a high level overview. I know I touched on some of it. And then just day to day, what are you, what, what's keeping you busy? Well, continental, as you mentioned, Kyle, is a developer of Uh, multifamily properties. We have three brands. We have the Springs brand of apartments. We have Authentics brand of apartments. And then Aventura single family rental homes, rental home communities. And so we're very active 
making those deals happen around the country. It's not as easy right now as it was just a year really? or two ago. Oh, <laughs> huh, Oh Yeah, trust me, I know. And you have 18,000 units currently in the portfolio? 18,000 in the portfolio and about four, five, probably 5,000 under construction in addition. So that's to that. a lot. What are some of the markets that you're most active in? Well, we span a pretty broad swath across the country. So Phoenix and Denver are active markets, a couple markets in Texas. Then we go up through the Midwest to Chicago and Minneapolis and Michigan, Grand Rapids and Detroit. And then we're in the Southeast in Tennessee, in Georgia and in Florida. What's the typical project size in terms of number of units? 260 to 300 units so pretty in the community. Big, yeah, pretty big communities. Right. And how, how long does it take you typically from the moment you acquire a site to the moment it's uh, it's open and, and tenants are moving in? Well, the first tenants move in from the time we acquire in about 13 or 14 months. But there's another at least 14 months that happens before that, as yeah. you know, to get through the entitlement process and the due diligence. And then the last apartment isn't completed for about 24 months after construction starts. And so it's fully occupied, we hope, within 30 months of groundbreaking. And how many people are at Continental today? We have about 150 in the Milwaukee office in development, and then we have about another 375 or so property management personnel at our properties around the country. So over 500-plus people. That's a lot of teammates. It, it is, and, and keeps us... Keeps, keeps us busy. busy. Keeps you busy. What What does a typical day or week look like for you right now? It's, it's hard to describe a typical day. There is no typical, sure, yeah. As I'm sure you're aware of. It's, it's a mixture of strategizing about markets and products and economics, you know, where the market's going. It's a big component about making sure that the culture of the organization is being expanded, reinforced and expanded, and that the people in the organization have the resources to do and be their very best. I know culture is a huge thing for you, especially at Continental, and and we'll get to all that. But touching on Wisconsin and being based out of there, and let me, if I could go back to the beginning, talk to us about, you are born in Wisconsin? I was. Talk to us about what it's like growing up in Wisconsin, you know, kind of what, what your life was like as a as a kid, and I'd like to you know, kind of see how that eventually led into real estate. You know, Wisconsin, as, as you found putting your family in, in Tennessee, Wisconsin's got a bit of that Norman Rockwell yeah. experience that, that goes with it. It was a very somewhat idyllic childhood, I guess, from the standpoint that there was safety, there was lots of family encouragement. It's a, it's cliche, like nobody locked their doors, everyone said hi. Exactly. And yeah, my grandparents lived across the street. My aunt and uncle lived a block away. My cousins were a couple blocks away. And this was in a suburb of Milwaukee? At, at the time, I don't think anybody considered it a suburb. It probably is today. It's a town called West Bend where many yeah. people got their popcorn poppers and their, their uh, coffee makers that used to say West Bend on them. A uh, town when I was growing up of probably 15,000 people today. It's about 35,000. And I still spend my summers uh, there at a lake outside of town. And so brothers, sisters? I was the trailer by many years. So my closest brother's 10 years older, and I have a sister who's 16 years old. They would argue you had a much different childhood, probably. It's a, 
you know, you see, you see parents, like by the time the last comes, it's like, hey, man, just keep them alive. Like, yes, you know. exactly. And so uh, what, what were you like as a kid? Well, I was probably always a little precocious and industrious because I was around older siblings and uh, really around adults most of the time. Um, and my father passed when I was nine. Mm. So that has a big impact on, yeah. on everyone's life. So I had influence from obviously a very, well, not obviously, but a strong mother who was able to do a pretty decent job of filling both roles yeah, as I was a parent. Ask, did you and have then to I had other relatives around to be supportive. Yeah, you, yeah, with family across the street, that certainly helps. Right. And where'd you go to high school? I went to high school at a big public high school in West Bend. It had a big school district, so I think there were 600 in my graduating class. Yeah, that's a big one. And it was a it was a high school from you know that that kind of working part of America. People didn't look at going to big name schools. And somebody said, Jim, you really ought to think about going to an Ivy League school. And there was only one I'd heard of, that was uh, the one in Cambridge. Yeah. And uh, I didn't get in there, and ended up struggling with where I was going to go to school, and ultimately picked a private school in Indiana for undergrad. Valparaiso. Correct. And how did that? How did that come about? You know, it's it's funny. I had actually chosen another school in Iowa that was my first choice. I'd looked at a bunch of schools, and I visited over senior weekend my senior year in high school and didn't like it. And so I was struggling with where am I going to go. And my aunt, my dad's sister, said, you know, your dad always loved Valparaiso. He wanted my daughter to go there. And I felt like it was my father speaking to me. And so I picked the school without ever visiting it. Turned out to be a great undergrad experience for me. And that's where I spent four years before I went to grad school. You had described yourself as, I think you said, industrious and precocious. And we're going to get to everything that, you know, professionally speaking, you've achieved. But I always ask the question, would, you know, whether it's your teacher or your Pop Warner football coach, your parents, would, would they... Would, would they have identified, you know, a younger version of you as someone who was at the, even at the time very disciplined, very driven, very achievement motivated, or was that something that maybe happened later in life? No, I, I think it probably was one of those things that, you know, some kids pick up a ball and bat and are just naturals at it. I don't know if I was a natural, but I was always gravitating towards achievement in, in whatever I tried, but, but I, I liked commerce. I had a bait business. I sold like night crawlers deals. to the neighborhood fishermen. And and uh, my mom told a story that she showed up at my kindergarten class and I was operating a school store and uh, had brought packages and things and made fake currency. And she asked the teacher if that was an assignment that I'd been given. And she said, no, he just decided to you were always an entrepreneur. I guess so. So so you, you operated a nightcrawler business. How did you get the nightcrawlers? How did I get them? Yeah. If you, if you <laughs> hose down the garden beds in the afternoon and then you come out at night and now the ground is soft and you have a flashlight, the, the nightcrawlers have come out. In the, in that's the, that's why they're called nightcrawlers. Yeah, it's and like... You, you collect them, and then you go around the next day and sell them to fishermen. I then started taking my rowboat out and selling them from boat to boat. So it was sort of like the 
early experience of going to the customer rather going to than the customer. The Plus, you know, if they're out there, they don't have a lot of supply choices and the demand is high, especially exactly. if they're running low on night crawlers. <laughs> exactly. So if you sell them on the shore, you sell them for, you know, five cents, but you sell them out there, you can sell them for 10, right? That was the, the, the plan and it worked out pretty well. That's very cool. So you're always creative, entrepreneurial, let's, let's put it. And, and so that, that's kind of what we say would be perhaps nature. You were just like that. I agree. Yes, and you know my uh, my father's my father was an engineer. He wasn't, a, but my mom had a. Uh, she never had her own business, but she was uh, business oriented. She bought a four family apartment building with my dad, mm. and then a few years later, my dad passed, and she said to me, "We're going to need to have you be the building superintendent to be able to make." things work out for us. So at age nine, I started fixing toilets and mowing lawns at the apartment building. And that kind of was my introduction into rental real estate. I was going to ask what well, I was going to ask later is, is talk to us how you got into real estate. But I guess it was at age nine when uh, your mom said you're going to do this. Huh? She always had an interest in real estate. So she'd talk about it. And so, you know, the things that are talked about at your family dinner table tend to be areas you become interested in. I'm sure Football was a big part of your conversation. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we talked to you, the, the the weaknesses of cover two versus quarters cover. It. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, it didn't apply to real estate that well. But so was that your first, that was your first introduction to even though it's not passive if you're fixing toilets and mowing lawns, but passive income. Correct. Right. And and what were your what were your if you can go back in time what were your initial thoughts as it related to real estate? You know, I think at that point I didn't really realize the nature of, of how you could build on it. But it it was apparent that here was this, this property that allowed my mom to support her family without having to take a job after my father passed. And I think so it sort of became intuitive that there is a an ability to build income and wealth through real estate and learning the, the process, you know, that from gee, we have to raise rents this month to real estate taxes went up to the building needs a new roof and you need to anticipate that. And probably not as much as today because people were just, they just didn't move as much, but even a vacancy and turning the unit, right? Right. No, I, I late at night, some nights, my mom and I would be there painting an apartment when it was turned and then she'd take me home because I was too young and get some sleep and she'd go back and finish working on the apartment. And you figured real estate was better than selling worms, right? Well, and actually the way I got into real estate as a career, because it wasn't my yeah. plan to make it a career. I had a friend from high school who was a year ahead of me who, like many of the kids at my high school, did not plan to go on to, to college afterwards. And I was asking him what he planned to do because he was working delivering boats. And I said, this really isn't the career you want. And he said, I'm not sure, but I know I, I don't like school well enough to go to college. And I said, why don't you get your real estate license and sell housing, sell homes? And he said, what do you have to do to, to be able to do that? And I said, I think you go to night school. Tell you what, I'll do it if you will. So he had graduated. I was his senior in high school. And we went to night school at a technical college for a real estate. And at that time, you could get a broker's license without being a salesperson yeah. first. And I took the test my senior year in high school, and I passed. So really, that beat mowing lawns for a summer job. And so, so you started selling homes as a summer job. Spring of my senior year in high school, I was selling houses, and it happened to be a strong year. It was like 2021, 
and much earlier than that, but it was a market like 2021. And so I made what seemed like a tremendous amount of money for a high schooler. And I thought, this isn't a bad you said, oh, this is easy, and you found out later, not not as easy. But uh, what was what was prospecting like back then? In the single-family business, it was a case of there were plenty of buyers at that particular time. You, there weren't enough sellers. And so finding ways to reach out to uh, to sellers, get listings, was used. And it was an interesting challenge as an 18-year-old high school rising college yeah. student to to have people take you seriously. Were you knocking on doors and cold calling? I was knocking on doors and cold calling. Um, There was a fair amount of networking that you did. I actually, I think not that summer, but within a few years, joined the local Rotary Club to try and do the networking process. Sure. But then the market turned very dramatically, much like it has now. What year was this? 1977, and in 1979, the year I started the company as a real estate broker. Was that for Volk, Volker? Uh, Volker jacked the interest uh, rates to, to the high teens, and suddenly there was no market. And so now you really had to be creative to, to pay the bills as well as to get the buyers. We ended up renting houses for mm-hmm. people who couldn't sell their home and they needed to relocate, and that sort of led to rental, property management, that kind of thing. Not not. That dissimilar to what's going on today with the the rate hikes, and I know we got here's another one coming up. This is my opinion, but a, a typical eighteen year old at any point, you know, over the last fifty years, especially one who just graduated, even going to college, typically is focused more on socializing and spending time with their friends, and where is the best party that night. And if they have a job, it's more of they, they just need just enough money to fund their social life. Again, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but, and we, we touched on it was you're very entrepreneurial, very, very motivated at a young age. Like at the time, what, what do you, in your opinion, what were you, what was your why? Like, what was your motivation? You know, when you try to reflect back on that, yeah. um, there were a lot of factors. One was certainly um, okay, if I'm going to enter this, I want to be the best at it. And so I was motivated to be the best. And when you're that young and that green, uh, there's a, it's drinking from a fire hose to try and be able to gain that expertise. So part of it was to be the best that I could be at whatever I was trying. Part of it, I think, was the tangibility of real estate. When you lose a parent at an early age, you lose some sense of security. And I think the tangibility of real estate provides that, that sense of security and foundation. It's not going anywhere. And uh, it isn't you know, hamburgers that fly off the counter every half hour. It's something that, that lasts. And that was meaningful to me. And then over a little bit of time... It became the the way that you could see that not only was leverage important for what it could do for your own personal portfolio, but how you could leverage opportunity for others. So I remember my mom didn't really appreciate, I think, what college students are doing because I came home every weekend or most every weekend to work. And one year we were building a retail store for a local retailer. It was the first retail development I did. It was 
probably my junior or senior year in, in college. And she said, you know, why don't you just stay at school for a few weekends and be a normal college student? As I said, if she knew what that meant, she probably wouldn't have encouraged it. And I took her out to this building we were building in the height of the Rust Belt recession. And I walked her through the building and there were drywallers and there were electricians. And I pointed them out to her and I said, those guys, if we weren't building this building, they might not have a job this week. And so they're going home because we decided to take the initiative and develop something. And she never asked that question again. So provide provided and, and likely still does fulfillment and satisfaction to also be able to provide an opportunity to create a living for others. Right. And, and again, as I said, that leverage factor, because then they go out and they support things in the economy. And from a, from a, I guess, a macro perspective, it's a small contribution towards getting things going and keeping things going. You gave us a glimpse, but talk to us about what, what your life was like uh, during college. It was, as I said, I came back and it was a three hour drive from uh, where I went to undergrad to, to my hometown. I started the company with my friend that that I had encouraged to get his real estate license. And who was that? His name was Rich Bell. Unfortunately, Rich Bell. a few years after we got, I got out of school, Rich got MS mm. and uh, was disabled and then eventually passed. But we started the company together. We were both 20 years old and we were building our first development. It was an 8,000 square foot office building in the middle of that recession, making every mistake known to man in the process. But we got the building up and there was a vacancy and we said, why don't we just start our own real estate company and open it there? So that was the start of Continental. And so all through undergrad, I would come back. And when I was in school during the week, that was when I wanted to have some of those social experiences you were mentioning because I was going to be working on the weekend. And then immediately after undergrad, I went to graduate school. I was going to ask about that. Where did the name Continental Properties come from? It was actually thoughtful. We we thought about it. At, at the time, a Continental, a Lincoln Continental was a pretty classy car. And so it, it carried a, click, a cachet yeah. of being classy. Things that were Continental were sort of implied as being European and and upscale. So that was part of it. And part of it was the sea to shining sea kind of idea that a couple of guys from West Bend, Wisconsin might someday have a business that reached from one coast to the other. And now you do. So you graduate, what did you major in? Undergrad was accounting. Accounting. And was that because uh, you thought it applied to real estate or was that because there was a moment you might think you would become a CPA? It actually was, I had thought when I was in high school that I would go to law school. Hmm. And I wanted to be a corporate attorney and an attorney advised me that an accounting would be an accounting major would be a good undergrad for law school if I wanted to be in corporate real estate. So that was how I came about. And it, 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 I mean, it, I, I got to imagine it served you very well in the real estate industry. It has. I, I mean, I, I've never I never sat for the CPA. I can't imagine what it'd be like to do an audit that it would be for me a little bit like nails on a chalkboard, but I appreciate the people who do it because it's very necessary. necessary But the idea of, of that foundation. And actually when I went to grad school, my friends who were not business undergrads found accounting to be really difficult and it was not difficult for me. Not a problem for you. So a lot of people they get their undergrad and even if eventually they get an MBA master's in business, they, they usually have some work experience. Um, I have to assume you did pretty well at Valparaiso because 
you immediately uh, attended and got into a very, very prestigious school, University of Chicago, the Booth School. Um, what, what, talk to us about that decision or, or, or how that came about. Well, when I decided I wasn't going to go to law school, I, by that time I'd learned enough about schools with pedigree to realize that there's a lot to be said for attending a school that has really strong name recognition as well as one that would be really a rigorous academic experience. So I looked at, at the big name schools. Chicago was one of the few that accepted students directly out of undergrad. Most of the big name schools required those couple of years. I already had a couple of years of business experience. True. So I felt as though, hey, that, that ought to count. And I did interview with and, and did get accepted at a couple of the other schools. But between geography and the very quantitative nature of Chicago's business school, which I liked, I decided to go to the U of C, and it was one of the better decisions I've made in my life. And that was Rockefeller's school, right? Rockefeller founded the school in the late 1800s, 1890-something, yeah. and it he created quite a legacy. He, d- he did, and it was, a, what was it, about an hour and a half from where your mom was based? Actually, probably two-plus two, two hours from... From I, my business was still at that time headquartered yeah. in West Bend. That's right. Good point. And so it was a two-hour drive. Closer than Indiana, but normally I'd ask, well, you know, talk to us about your first your first job. But it sounds like you already had that was starting your own real estate company in college. Well, the first job was before that. I was an office boy in a, in a law office because remember, I thought I wanted to go to law school. That that's pro- that's probably where 16. you were. Yeah, that's probably when you said, "I don't want to do this." <laughs> yeah, you're right. And you saw all those attorneys, and they were probably. You know, I was sitting there clocking, frustrated. But so you graduate with your MBA. And again, you're already, you've already got continental, I would say off the ground, but you already started, you already got it rolling. How did that education at University of Chicago help you as a founder of Continental? You know, I think business education, and particularly in a graduate program and a concentration in finance, really helps you frame problems. So, I don't use the Black-Scholes option pricing model in my day-to-day business work, but the, the way that problems are framed to, to create solutions or to reach conclusions is something that, that I was taught in business school, and I think I still use it every day in my business experience. And then there is a networking. I have a lot of friends from business school that have gone into a lot of different walks of life and we've stayed connected. And then finally, I, I do think that, that there's a little bit of a pedigree. I'm, I'm very grateful for that U of C degree behind yeah. my name because it, it credibility, either opens right? doors or gives some credibility. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's credibility, tre- tremendous credibility. I think people say, well, if, if he or she could get in there and graduate, they have to be somewhat reliable, right? So yeah, tremendous credibility with a school like that. So, all right, you got your MBA. You've already started Continental. Now it's it's full time school. Not that it'd ever be a distraction, but you you've you've earned your degree and uh, you've earned your master's. Talk to me about what what those first couple of years were like, going full speed, full time. What, what were you working on? What was the focus? What was your your schedule like? You know, your kind of your lifestyle. And then I'm going to ask like. 
talk to us about your personal life and how those sometimes work together or didn't, you know, but yeah, what was it like early on? Well, you know, you, you said, okay, now you're out of school, but when, when I was finishing at Chicago, I, we still weren't making any money in the real estate business and it was the height of a very serious recession. And so I considered taking a job with a Chicago degree. There were really good jobs and sort of the, the brass ring was being an investment banker mm -hmm. or a management consultant. I thought, gee, maybe I want to do this investment banking thing. In Chicago? No, actually in New York. Yeah, I was going to say maybe in New and York. I didn't, when I went to business school, I didn't even know what an investment banker was. By the time mm -hmm. I graduated, I had a sense of it. So I did go through the process and spent some time in New York, prepared a resume. My friends joked because my resume said work 35 to 45 hours during the school year and full time during the summers. And my friends laughed at that. Okay, 35 to 45 hours and then full time yeah. during the summers. Where did you interview? I did. Like I interviewed Solomon with Brothers some. I, or, yeah. yeah, Solomon was one of them. Yeah. So I interviewed at, at a couple of the big name shops. And in the end, I decided that I would always wonder if I could have made it work. If I did that in New York, I was pretty confident I could have done okay in investment banking, but I would have always wondered if I could have done this entrepreneurial thing and made it work. So I went back. I didn't draw a salary for, or what, when I'd take draws, they were very small for the first couple of years. I lived really hand to mouth, didn't have a lot of social life, but I did manage to fit some in, but I was working a lot of long hours, but it was very fulfilling because I was moving towards the goal. Well, talk to me, what long hours at the time, what did it look like? Well, I, I would say it was probably 75 to 85 hours a week. So you wake up early, you stay late, you work weekends, that, the whole, yeah, the whole ex thing? exactly. And, yeah. you know, the, the kind of thing you should be doing uh, when you're in your 20s, I, I've read some of the notes you've made, Kyle, about laying that foundation, what yeah. it means for what you can build upon later. And you can make a decision later in life than if you want to keep working like that or if you want to throttle it back. Yeah, front-loading. And, you know, I think most people agree if, if invested even somewhat wisely, uh, wealth can compound. And so, you know, the sooner you can get to it, you know, professional success and, and financial success, ideally, the more that, that wealth can work for you and put you in a position if you want to one day, you can say, hey, I'm, I'm totally done. I want to throttle back or I want to go full speed, but I want to change my focus maybe from my, you know, historical career pr profession to um, charity or philanthropic, which, you know, I know you've done a ton of. And uh, so, yeah, I meant it's, you're definitely a testament to some of the, some of the focus I've, I've had here at Matthews with, because, you know, we have so many young men and women and just, you know, really just educating them. And what my experience was, is if you could just just get it going early, which, you know, respectfully requires tremendous sacrifice and simply put long, long hours and weekends and all that. Uh, if applied correctly, your, your career can give, can give back so much. You're right. And, and the time to, to be able to make that foundational investment is when you're in your 20s. Generally speaking, you, you likely, you know, again, it's a, how would I say you, there's a, probability maybe that you're not married definitely kids again that doesn't mean you can't it just there just tends to be a correlation early in your 20s it's, it's just kind of you you know and i made the conscious decision okay i'm going to sacrifice some of those social components and it was a conscious decision and still have the opportunity for it and i did get married in my 30s and started my family in my 30s but that also meant that 
I was in a position to offer experiences to my family that they may not yeah. have otherwise been able to do. We traveled a lot. I was able to make sure we had household help because I kept up a pretty busy schedule. And so to make sure that it wasn't overburdening on the rest of my family, I made sure we had those kind yeah, of I'm things. Gonna, I'm going to ask about uh, Italy here later because <laughs> uh, I think that's one of the coolest things you ever did. But uh, so you're in your 20s, you're sacrificing your social life, you're working crazy long hours. Were there ever moments where you where you kind of ask yourself, like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, it's just like, is it, is it worth it? Or why am I not doing what all my buddies are doing? Like, did you, did you ever have, I don't want to just say doubts, or did you ever just question the direction you had chosen? No, you know, I, I didn't say, you know, why am I doing this? Uh, I didn't question, is is this worth it compared to going out and and being a little more, more relaxed? There were moments when I said, is this really ever going to pay off? Yeah, I was going to ask. Hey, you know, yeah. we were throwing a lot of things against the wall and not much was sticking at the time. Looking back after all these years, you ever look back and, and you know, it's like a hindsight 2020, you look back and you just say, well, of course it paid off because I, I was doing X, Y, and Z. Or do you think you really had to make some very, you know, unique and, 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 and correct decisions for it to have worked out the way it did. Well, they're making unique and correct decisions always, you know, they, it helps. It, Bill Gates decided to, to collaborate with his, his friend, Steve Allen, you yeah. know, it could have been somebody else and it may have gone a different way, but you know that Bill Gates would have been successful in his career, no matter what he decided to do, because he was, he was driven. He wasn't going to, be put down by mistakes or failures. Look at Steve Jobs and, and the failures that he had in his career, but it didn't really stop him. I just heard someone make the comment, and I'm sure you've heard it before, success is 99% failure. And so every one of those things that didn't turn out to work out the way you anticipated was a great lesson. The day I graduated from college, I took my, my business partner had come down to graduation, my family all went home and I said, hey, there's a new housing development outside of town in Valparaiso, Indiana. I want you to see. I think we could do this back home. So we went and looked at it. We thought it was a great idea. We got the local savings and loan to fund us and we built it and it was a, a failure by any measure of, of the financial success. But man, did I learn a lot from that experience. And I always say I completed one expensive education the day I graduated and I started a new one the same day. Would you describe yourself as someone who generally more so learns from mistakes or have you had success learning from others' mistakes to prevent yours? Well, I, th I think it would be foolish to not try to learn from other people's successes and failures and say, how, how couldn't this be modified? I think what you will find with, with people who are successful in what, whatever measure you want that to be, not strictly financial, but in whatever endeavor people are after. One of the things that they have in common is that they're lifelong learners. And they're, they're never saying, okay, I've got the answers. I know how to do this. I got it. I don't need to learn anymore. And so I think learning from your failures, learning from other people's successes and failures, is really critical. And when you complete something, whether it went well or whether it went poorly, to do a, a post-mortem, to, to mm -hmm. look back on it and, and take a, a careful look and say, 
what did I miss? What did I do right? What was pure luck here and how do I replicate luck? I used to say to my kids, there was a quote from a, a musical called Pippin that said, it's smarter to be lucky than it's lucky to be smart. Sure. And my kids took a long time to really understand what that meant, but it's essentially making your own luck by being smart about it. Speaking of pot potential mistakes, but what were, what were some of the biggest challenges early on in, in building Continental? Man, it was, it was creating credibility, I think. You know, one, we were very young, and so people looked skeptically at it. It was really identifying where value was. The first building that we developed, we were building before we started Continental. We were still working as real estate agents for another firm, and I had a piece of land listed that looked like it would be a good office location, had someone who wanted to lease space there but didn't want to own their company was looking to lease. And so I thought, how hard can this be? I didn't have any developers. So we put the deal together. The local bank said they'd finance it if we got the leases signed and if we got an equity investor. So I went out and spent my savings on a set of plans, got a lease signed, got an equity investor. And in the meantime, the credit markets had changed. Mm. And I went back to the bank that summer, summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. And the banker said, well, Jimmy, the credit markets have changed, and I don't think we'll have the money for you. And two days later, he called and said, no money. So I spent the summer going to larger banks in Milwaukee, and they pretty much laughed me out the door. And by happenstance, someone introduced me to an insurance company, small insurance company in Madison, Wisconsin, that made commercial loans. And I made my presentation, and the assistant treasurer as I got done with my presentation, said, well, how old are you? And I thought, the curtain's about to fall. Mm -hmm. It was a week after my 20th birthday. I said, I'm 20. And he said, well, what's your net worth? And if you took the blue book value of my car and multiplied <laughs> it by three, and you took the value of those plans that I had spent my savings on and some money my grandmother had put away to help me with college, I think I said, it's $40,000. I said, I know that's not much, but it's growing. And he laughed and he said, my I think that's pretty good for a 20-year-old. He said, my boss is the kind of guy that if he's got two identical projects, one's presented by a 35-year-old and one by a 50-year-old, he'll always go with the younger guy. It's going to be real interesting to see what he does when he sees this 20-year-old. And two weeks later, they gave me a commitment for a quarter of a million dollars to build that building. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, a, that's quite the net worth for someone who's 20. I mean, I don't think most 20-year-olds today have that, right? They're probably... Well, I was probably stretching a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know, you're in sales. I always, you know, again, when, when with young sales professionals, especially here, when I say, look, you're going to get the question at some point, like, what's your age? I said... You just gotta, you just gotta help the owner reframe the question. The question is like, do you, you want to know, you know, what's your question? I always say, ask them back. What's your question? Is what's my age or, or what is my experience? You know, I said because if I were to tell you I'm 25 and I've been in the business three years, I've done 20 deals versus uh, someone who's 55 who just get in yesterday. Do you really care about the age or are you asking about the experience? So that that's how I, in my own career, learned to reframe that because I was very young and people were like, how old are you? And you know, my first, you know, five, six years, I'd bumble it. Yeah, I'd tell them my age and then I didn't, I didn't have the net worth you did. Certainly I didn't have that discipline, but eventually I said, well, what's your question? Is it, what's my age or what's my experience? And it's not just experience at that point. It's also eagerness and commitment to succeed. 
you know, there, there's a little bit of complacency that comes for all of us as time marches on and, and, and you become a little bit more comfortable. And so, again, I think what that guy was essentially saying is that the younger professional was probably more likely to be committed and eager to make sure yeah. it happened. And someone you could build with if assuming he when is I, those things. When I started Continental, the very first agent that I hired, because we were residential brokers, and, and we quickly went into commercial brokerage, was 72 years old. He was a retired businessman that had been my parents' neighbor. And it was a great sort of a yin and yang for us. I would go out on calls with him and I was 20 and he was 72. And people would say, how did the two of you come to work together? And he would say, I work for Jimmy. And uh, I was going to say, they probably assumed that he was, they, you know, you were the one with the experience. He was new, but they'd probably look at him and ask him the questions. Right. And, hey, yeah. whatever worked. What, what was, what were some of, or the darkest moment professionally speaking, in the beginning, and, and, and how'd you guys get through it? Well, you know, darkest moments were on Friday night when I'd get back from college, and I would, after everyone left the office, I'd open up the checkbook, and I would open, it was before we had books, I'd open up the checkbook and the, the bill file, and I'd decide which bills could be paid and which mm -hmm. ones we'd have to wait on for a couple of weeks to, to be tough. able to pay, and, and just being sure how to how to pay the bills, how to meet the commitments, but failure wasn't an option. Somehow we were going to make it happen. Why was it not an option for you? Because I, I just always feel there is a way to make something, something work. And so you just have to be resourceful enough. You have to come up with the answer and try something different. And at the same time, operate with principle because I believe that principle will ultimately always succeed. We have a, something we call the Continental Creed that was written 20 years after the company was founded, but it talks about doing better than we've ever done before, doing better than is found any place in the marketplace, but doing so with respect for every individual and with principle. And people will talk about the creed, and I say, well, it was written 20 years after we started the company, it could have been written the day we started because we always operated with those principles. And it, it just said, it isn't working now, figure out the next way that's going to make it work. We have close to, if not the same saying at Matthews, we're going to do it better than it's ever been done before. And I would love to give you credit, but I got that from Pete Carroll okay. when he, when he came into SC and he, he just, you know, he kind of took things and, and made them simple for us football players. He said, look guys, you know, he'd, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And he said, simply, simply put, we're going to do it better than it's ever been done before. And that it was on, you know, signs around Heritage Hall, which is where we spent most of our time on campus. But it, simple but effective. Maybe Pete got it from us because I, I, I was going to say the creed before you were yeah, on yeah, the team. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say definitely he stole it from you, and you should you should talk to him about that. <laughs> Conversely, speaking of doing it better or, or always finding a way, is is what you just said is. Share with us a, a big win or two that, you know, early in those years where all of a sudden you said, hey, this might actually work. Well, probably the turning point, you know, when yep. we went from being broke all the time and deciding uh, what bills to pay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We had built a relationship with a commercial real estate firm and they introduced me to a local grocery chain and I got the opportunity to build, build a suit 
NetLeast grocery store. What grocery chain was that? That was a chain called Sentry, which was later purchased by Fleming Foods out of Oklahoma, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a a financially strong chain. We built a triple NetLeast development with a Sentry store, and it had extra land with it. I found an investor to put up the money. I didn't have any money to do this. He put up the equity. We got a bank to lend us the money. And turned out that Kmart was looking to put a store in that market. And so and they were they were the heavy hitter. They at were the time. they were bigger than Walmart at the time. Yeah. And so I built the first Kmart next door and within ten years we had built probably thirty Kmarts and became one of the biggest developers of Kmarts before they got in financial trouble. Yeah. And but what that then led to, and this is where probably the Chicago training came into play the I didn't really want to sell them to to third parties in order to realize the profit I needed to and I spent a lot of time with some small boutique investment bankers and we ended up getting the rating agency to rate a bond issued against our real estate at the same credit rating as Kmart's credit rating so, which at the time because, was investment Because credit. your company's income was effectively backed by them. Exactly. Got and it, it basically was the forerunner to CMBS. I was going to say that's very cheap debt. And this was in the early 90s. And so we essentially financed at 105% of our cost, got our profit out of the deal, and there was no cash flow as a one oh one debt service coverage ratio. Where there's like fully amortizing. Fully amortized over, over the uh, life of the lease. So and the leases were 25 years. 25 years, God. So it was a self-amortizing 25-year lease. Kmart was great credit. Okay, someday I'll own these Kmart stores free yeah. and clear. There was phantom income because the depreciation didn't, in later years, equal the, the debt yeah. amortization. But by the time those had happened, Kmart had already filed for bankruptcy once or twice, and the world changed. But we had essentially taken our, our profit out up front, and that suddenly gave Continental the the financial ability to expand. Yeah. And so they, they were, you know, when I was a little later growing up, the zero cash flow deals, you saw a lot of that on the CVS product, uh, on the drugstore Yeah, I think product. you sold a few for us. I think we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Very cool. Yeah, that that's a very creative financing option. Were you, was that new to you? Or had you heard of anyone doing that before you? It wasn't just new to us. I think it was pretty new in the marketplace. Yeah. I remember going and meeting with Goldman in New York and a guy who was the head of real estate at Goldman and subsequently went to another big REIT to Mm -hmm. run a big REIT. And he said, you know, what you're talking about doing isn't done. But we had found, again, hungry, ambitious boutique investment bankers who got it done. And then we did several deals that way. And then other Kmart developers and Walmart developers started doing the same thing. And it was it was a big deal. Trailblazer. So, so you're, you, you, I don't want to call it a liquidity event, but you're able to get liquid from, at the time, some, I mean, really the best of the best from a tenant perspective, right? And, and I think you said that that really allowed you guys to take off. What, what did that look like? Like, what was the scaling that occurred at the company because you were able to realize your profits? We were able to hire someone who had a lot of big box net retail experience. He came on board and ultimately led our big box work. And even though we're not developing big box retail anymore, he 
is about to retire. He's been with the company for 33 years and led us to develop ultimately about 11 million square feet of net leased retail space. We developed for Kmart in the early years. I used to call them the twins because all of the the category killers would have at least two, Circuit City and Best Buy, mm. linens and things in Bed Bath & Beyond, all names that I'm throwing out that are gone today, but that that were high credit net lease tenants, and we built for all of them. We started to build for Walmart as Kmart's volume was going down. You couldn't build for both, so it yeah. was after we had already been building for Kmart. And then Kohl's is headquartered in Menominee Falls, the same town where Continental is headquartered. And so we did a lot of Kohl's work, probably built as many Kohl's around the country as any developer did. Yeah, yeah you, I mean, you guys did build a lot for Kohl's. I think I sold some for you back in back in the day as well. What, you know, I want to push pause, you know, if I because I, I, I think from a timing perspective, we're getting that the company is scaling, you're getting super active. Talk to us about Home life. Well, that was about the time. Yep. Okay, now we've we've uh, put it into gear and things are there. So now I, but actually, I guess a, it was a little earlier because my wife jokes that she didn't really want to be a working professional her entire life. But when we got married, she thought she might have to be. Yeah. But shortly thereafter is when we did that financing, mm-hmm. and I quickly had my two children at that point in time. And so now I'm trying to grow a, an, a business from its infinite infancy to its adolescence, I guess, and grow a couple of, help raise a couple of infants as well. And as I said, it was helpful that by then we had realized the financial success to be able to have help yeah. so that the time that, that I was at home, I didn't have to be mowing the lawn or doing those kind of things, yeah. although sometimes I like to just to get my mind say, off of things. I was going to say, yeah. and that, and, and the same with helping my wife because I was still working a lot of hours we, that we were able to have help. And it was great to be able to give our kids a lot of experiences that were maybe a little different. Yeah, talk to us about, you had shared with me previous, I'm going to fast forward a couple of years, I think you said when, you're, when your kids were maybe junior high, a little bit in the high school, you moved to Italy for a year. They were actually in middle school, middle school seventh yeah. and eighth grade. And my wife and I had been talking about the fact that neither of us had had the opportunity to study abroad in college. Hers was financially, financial reasons. Mm -hmm. Mine was primarily because I had a business. (laughs) There wasn't a semester to go abroad. And we were talking about how the kids likely would do that when they got to college. And I looked at her, I said, I'll be damned if they're going to do it before we do. So we investigated and we decided to put the kids in the International School of Florence in Italy. We rented a home there and we moved over and I worked remotely, which in the early 2000s was was a little different. I still had a fax machine I had to use and the schedule was great because the office didn't open until about two or three Mm -hmm. in the afternoon, something like that. So I could see my kids off to school in the morning, which I'd never done. I took some language and some architecture courses. And then I'd be home when the kids came home from school and my work day would start and I'd work till midnight. I was going to ask what were the the hours like? It was a little later at night. Right. right. And, And but then that meant that in the morning I'd send off some emails or send faxes at that time to the office. And when they finally got into the office at seven in the morning, their time, 
they'd already had the communication from me. And then we'd work throughout the rest of the day. It was, it was a terrific experience. And I would fly back to the U.S. once a month, spend a, about a week or so in person, and the rest of the time I worked remotely. Yeah, that's incredible. It's such a cool experience. One of the best family decisions. I, I was going to ask. It was, you said it was a great family decision. Mm-hmm. What year was this? 2003. Okay, 2003. And so Continental, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Continental's is humming. It's it's growing. It's it's executing assignments. It's making money. You know, you're you're you have your two kids, and Andrea, you guys, you're in Italy. What, what, what was the moment where it's not necessarily you push pause, but you kind of looked at, at, at you, just professionally speaking, you're like, wow, this is, this, this has the opportunity to be, be really big. You know, I, I, I don't know that there was a moment where that happened. It, it was an evolution and, and it's constantly morphing. And I think for, for me, it's more important to focus on the next challenge rather than to say there's an end goal. So there wasn't ever an end end goal. I don't like the idea of an end goal. Kind of like, okay, then then what happens? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I dying? Am yeah. I in decay? You always have to be evolving. You always have to be growing in some way because businesses are like living organisms. If you're not in growth... You're in decay. You're in decay. Was it... Was it Aristotle who said that? I'm not sure, but I believe it. I, Jack, you can fact check me on this one. I think Socrates said there's three stages of life, growth, maintenance, and decay. And then his his pupil, his, it was Aristotle, and he it was controversial because he said there aren't three, there's just two. You're either growing or you're decaying. You know? And I thought that was super cool and something I've always thought of, and it, it seems like a similar... Um, view that you hold, uh, but it's a perfect segue, either, you know, growing or dying, evolving was a word you just used. Talk to me about the evolution. Cause when I first met you guys and, and certainly the work I did for you back in the day was on the retail side. And that was, again, tell me I'm, I'm off base, but that was really what you were known for was, you know, building Kmart's then Walmart's then Kohl's and these big box retail, had a lot of success over the years. But at some point you pivoted to multifamily or you added it on then ultimately became a pivot what what when did that happen and that's exactly right it wasn't a pivot as it was an expansion mm-hmm. and then almost like stages of a rocket ship you know you have the the booster yeah, and that's then right. the, yeah, the, the booster it. falls off and, yeah. and you have the next retail level of booster. propulsion yeah and, and it mentioned that early on we threw anything against the wall and so yeah, the first building office, i built yeah. was an office building Kind of glad I... I was going to say... Um, <laughs> that it was short-lived. Hopefully you're not building too much office uh, right now. And then uh, then we did a little bit of housing, but it was actually acquisition. We bought a 16-family apartment building as one of the very early things. Mm-hmm. And it was all done with other people's money as as equity. We were what back Was it just then, friends and family? Back, well, it was, it was uh, acquaintances, I guess. Yeah. I didn't know any high net worth individuals in the early 80s. So my eighth grade algebra teacher was one of my investors, oh, wow. a, a local police detective that fortunately we hadn't gotten into trouble with, but we knew. He's and, a, he's a, as long as the projects work out, he's a, good yeah, guy. Exactly. he's a good guy to have in your deals. Those were our investors. But an interesting thing about that was back in the 80s, a lot of deals were primarily tax driven. 
people structured deals to take advantage of big tax losses that could be used against and that earned ultimately income. Led to the SNL, and then when yeah. the tax laws changed, that crash. Yeah. I didn't know any high net worth individuals, so our deals were based upon the pure economics of the real estate. That's great. And so they they survived. But we ultimately it was retail that we were focused on. And then in the late nineties, I said uh, with with my senior people in the company, we need to put another leg on the stool. We're relying entirely on retail. Retail's doing great, but we ought to have some other protection, risk management, if you mm-hmm. will. And we looked at a lot of product, medical office building, industrial, and we settled on market rate multifamily. And coincidentally, I received in a resume at that time from someone in Florida who had spent his career in multifamily. We hit it off. He had a good fit for the culture and we hired him and we were very methodical. We didn't say, gee, let's go find a piece of zone land and and build wherever we find the zone land. We spent almost two years creating a prototypical product because one of the things we learned from the big box retailers is if you build the same thing over and over again, you get very efficient at efficient, it. Yeah. So we created a prototypical product, and then we studied markets, and we said it's not in a concentric circle from Milwaukee that we need to look. We need to say what is the market that has the best opportunity, and we started in, in Central Florida, in Sarasota. We built our first communities. The next ones were built in San Antonio, mm. and we launched that brand. Going into the great financial crisis, we were probably 40% multifamily, 60% big box retail. Coming out of the GFC, there was very little retail being built. I think we built grocery stores after that for a period of time, but multifamily took over the predominant product line. Talk to us about the, the, the GFC. I mean, was that something that was really hard on you guys or? It was. We had gotten over our skis. I always said, only buy the land you need for the signed deals you have. And we lost some of that discipline and we mm-hmm. bought extra land. The marketplace required you to buy land in bigger parcels because somebody else would, would do it. And we got over our skis and we had a lot of debt that we had to, to meet. We met every, every dollar of debt. We paid it all back. We paid some high interest rates because the debt was troubled. So they mm-hmm. jacked up the interest rates on us. But we made it through. We had bankers who were relatively patient. I wouldn't say they were easy on us at the time, but they were relatively patient. But I think, Kyle, that I look back and I, when people ask me, I say that was one of the defining moments for the company and one of the moments I'm proudest of because we had to have a riff. We had to cut back on uh, the number of employees in the company. And the way we went about it in uh, being very transparent in doing as much as we were possibly capable of financially to supporting the people that we had to part ways with. Uh, And the way we made the decision was based on merit rather than on tenure or those kind of decisions. And we just said, we're going to do whatever it takes. I went a year without a salary. That was meaningful to our banks to see that, you know, I was willing to make the sacrifice before 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 it was uh you know, the thing to do, like when COVID hit, everyone's like, I'm not going to take a salary. But this was back back then when those moves were just a lot less public, you know, um, this still was, it still must've been pretty hard though. It was, it was really tough. Um, you know, there were, were times when I think a lot of people would say, are you going to make it through? 
And again, I had that motivation and that attitude that there wasn't a choice, but it was a stressful time. And, and Menominee Falls, Milwaukee in general, even though it's you know city most people have heard of, it's still it's a, it's a, it's still like a it's a community, right? And, and a lot of people you work with live in that community, so that you, it's just a tough time, to, especially in real estate. And so one of the things that that we did, we said, okay, I think it was two thousand nine. We didn't break ground on a single project. It was the first time in twenty years, at least, that we hadn't broken ground on a single project. But we said, what what can be built? What can be financed? Because the banks had shut off construction lending. And we ended up realizing that small, very modest apartment communities in secondary cities, there were still investors in those markets that had money. Had, had kind of this idea generated when I was having a conversation with a, a dentist at a at a dinner party I was at. Isn't that what they say is, is when you need to get out of real estate is when your dentist when is your getting... Dentist, but he, this was actually the dentist's husband was investing in real estate yep. and she was generating the income. Okay, well, that's an but exception. I, but I said, there is a marketplace for people who, who want to invest in smaller projects in secondary cities. So we went to Lincoln, Nebraska. We went to Des Moines. We went to Tulsa. And we built a very stripped-down product and got it financed with local banks who still had some lending capacity. And what happened was nobody else had been building. So when the market then in 2011, 2012 turned, we had the new product. You had the new product. And it rolled out. Yeah, and you probably a really good lease-up too because, again, uh, there wasn't almost any right. uh, new inventory hitting the market between, uh, let's call it, I mean, gosh, like, 2010 to 2013-14. Ah, uh, yes, the good old days like, when there was no new product hitting uh, the market. Except, <laughs> except yours. And I know one of the things you're also very proud because you, 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 know, you spoke about is you guys have, what, three different unique brands on the multifamily side? We do. I think that yeah. that discipline. And you did take a retailer's approach where That's you just right. you create this 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 blueprint, this this product, and then you just in retail, you know, if it's a coal, you just build the same coals. You know, the square footage might be a little different, but like it's generally the same thing over and over. And it, it's scalable, but most importantly, you said efficient. And you you took that, that, you know, kind of retailer school of thought and applied it to multifamily, which I had not seen. We we talked earlier about learning from every experience, mm-hmm. and so you might not think there's a whole lot to learn on retail development to apply to multifamily, but it turned out that both from a market research standpoint, we had learned quickly with the big box retailers that the the way we could get in front of them was to kind of understand, not more kind of, it was to truly understand their core customer and where those customers were and then where the needs weren't being served and then find sites and go to the retailer and say, you really belong here. And so we that was a key to our success with the retailers. We started out as a half dozen people in Milwaukee building Kmart stores in very diverse geography. The only way that can be done is because you're building the same thing and you have the efficiency of prototype. So we applied those lessons to multifamily. And from a retailer's perspective, they can move a general manager from one store to the other and the location of home goods in their housewares and their men's apparel is the same in every store. So they, they have sort of that efficiency 
from an operational standpoint. We found the same in multifamily, that it's not only the efficiency of construction, but it's also the efficiency of operation that we're able to gain. If someone moves from a property we have in Denver to a property we have in Dallas, they're already familiar with the floor plans. They're familiar with the amenity package, all of those kind of things. So what does Continental look like today? Well, you know, you guys are 18,000 units, but what's your focus? Where are you guys building? Well, as I mentioned early on in our conversation, it's a pretty tough time. Margins are really squeezed. It's tough to make deals work. Construction costs have not abated. No. And, and we're starting to see things level off a bit, but there hasn't been much abatement. And yet rents have slowed. The, the increase in rents has slowed dramatically. We see a huge supply of multifamily yeah. coming online over the next 18 months. So there are a lot of challenges. We have kind of taken a little bit of that playbook from uh, the GFC, and we are more focused on mid-markets than we had been more recently. And we're trying to continually refine our product. The second brand that you mentioned, our Authentics brand, was designed to be a more entry-level product than our Springs Apartments. And it's proven to be a good competitive product. The cost to develop is less. Therefore, the rent that we need to achieve is lower. And it's been well-received in the marketplace. We probably have four or five of those communities open and another half dozen or more under construction. And the market has received the product very well. Speaking of building products, especially in the multifamily space, and I'm going to use this to segue to your activities, specifically when, within uh, the National Multifamily Housing Council, NMHC, and your activity on the Hill in D.C. and meeting with Congress and senators and the like, because you and I have spent some time outside of real estate, you know, meeting with some of these folks and having some nice dinners. Is 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 your role and responsibility as a housing provider? Right? Is your you know you you you've built so many units, you you currently own and operate so many units, but I, and again, I'm gonna just high level summarize here is and I can't remember is thirty five forty cents of every dollar spent to build multifamily, to build housing is spent on permitting, right? Or it's regulation. 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 And and I think you've very passionately communicated this to anyone, everyone who listen, who will listen in DC, but how, how is that, how is that battle going? So yet the NMHC has actually in conjunction with the home builders has commissioned two studies now to take a look at what is the impact of the of regulation on the cost of building housing? And you're right, Kyle, the number is in the high 30s percent of total cost of a new home, whether it's a multifamily home or a single-family home, that is due to the burden of regulation. And it would be foolhardy of any of us to say there isn't of value to some of that regulation. Fire code, mm-hmm. reasonable fire codes, I would say, because one of the biggest challenges we have in in our work is the uh, the application of fire code and the the demands of fire code in the field. But but there are certainly is regulation that makes sense. And I think the 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 creation of ADA standards 
something that's been very good for society as a whole. Some of it maybe sometimes stretches too far, but those are examples of reasonable regulation. But there are other costs of regulation that don't have uh, a net positive impact on society and on certainly on the housing market, and that has driven housing costs to the point. So on the one hand, we talk about the importance of having uh, quality, adequate housing for our entire population and that that's a real problem today. I think 2020 may have been the first year where a presidential election, every candidate talked about housing as part of their platform, which I don't think happened in the past. So it's clearly become a key factor. But some of the important impediments to providing an adequate housing supply come from the very people that are saying we're not doing enough to create that housing. That's what I was going to ask. I want to get your opinion on this because it is an opinion is if, if, if the cost of regulation is in the high 30s, what would you say the percentage of that or ratio is, uh, in your opinion, necessary? And it's, it's for the greater good and public safety and all that. And how much is uh, just regulations getting you to spend money so it, it pays for their salaries? Well, it's a hard question to ask because yeah. I haven't seen any research on it to, to really put, it, put a number on it. So I can't say, but I'm confident that it's enough to move the needle. That, the, that if we just went back to what a majority of Americans, if they understood the, the overall factors, would say this is reasonable, this is safe, this is appropriate. If we went back to that number, we would move the needle and we would reduce housing costs by a significant amount and increase affordability for the population that is most challenged at providing housing. Our particular product is a more, what I like to call workforce attainable cost of housing. But in some markets and in some product, people are spending way too much of their income mm-hmm. uh, on housing. The, the particular congressional testimony you were talking about, I like to cite because it's one of my pet peeves and we haven't been able to address. There is a uh, HUD regulation that requires that every apartment community has a 2% slope accessible path from every apartment in every in in the entire complex to all other housing units within the community and all amenities a 2% slope and as i said in that particular congressional hearing room i walked in on a handicap ramp that was an 8% slope into that, but they are requiring a slope that is one-fourth, no greater than one-fourth of that throughout the apartment community. So when we build in the Rocky Mountains, we sometimes have to spend seven figures in retaining walls and grading in order to achieve that 2% slope throughout the community. And 2% barely allows water to drain off, so you don't want to be any less than a 2% slope. And a handicapped slope is an 8% slope. So why not have that requirement match what the the ADA requirement is? Yeah, and then having these requirements, something like that, uh, increases the cost, increases the cost for those marginal products where 
if that wasn't there, it would actually pencil and someone like you would move forward and build another 250 to 400 unit apartment project that doesn't get built and the supply doesn't grow as fast as it needs to or as fast as, you know, perhaps not just the real estate industry, but the tenant base would want it to because it, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a rocket scientist, but the, uh, the best way to lower rents is uh, build more product. It's simple supply and demand. That's been a key point of advocacy within NMHC, the National Multi-Housing Council, is we all share the objective of creating more affordable, attainable housing. And the best way to do that is to increase supply, which goes to zoning regulations, which goes to other regulations, both at the federal, the state, and the local level. Every now and then you run into a, I'll call it a tenant advocate who you know, thinks uh, developers are this terrible bunch, you know, taking advantage, uh, greedy, all this. I said, I said, hey, you know, the best way to get developers to make less money is get them to overbuild, right? Get get them to dump a ton of supply on the market. Rents, you know, will, will soften, if not go down significantly. They'll make way less money and you'll have cheaper rent. But again, this gets back to let them build. Right. And, and, and I do think... I think in in all aspects of society, we could take a page from John Kennedy when he said, that which unites us is greater than that which divides mm-hmm. us. And we ought to be talking about what we, what we share. And the housing advocates and the industry share the idea of being able to provide attainable housing. There are different methods, and we need to focus on what it is we share. And so if if we understood all of the objectives of the housing advocates, I think the the objective is the same. It's the route to get there, and we should have more conversation about how we get there. That's one of the things that NMHC is actively trying to do. Speaking of sharing, I want to get you to share your, your current why um, with the audience. And what I mean by that is you're, you're crazy active politically in the sense of being an advocate for development, for housing providers. You're incredibly, I have a day-to-day, you're going full speed ahead at Continental Properties and, you know, this market condition aside and finding new projects and, and leading the company. And you, you have great teammates over there, many of which I know personally. Again, you're going full speed. You're going hard, in my, in my opinion. I, I say this again, this is me saying it is, is you've achieved tremendous professional and financial success. You have a gorgeous house in Wailea. Why aren't, why aren't you just sitting on a beach playing, playing golf with no shoes on at McKenna, right? Like we did that one time. Why are, why are you still going full speed? You know, it takes a lot less effort to build a couple thousand apartment units than to lower my handicap by a couple this, of yeah. strokes. So <laughs> I don't know about so that. I, you, just, you've <laughs> seen me golf, so uh, there's no judgment over here. I'm I'm focusing on the on the easy thing, which is creating jobs and building houses, not lowering my handicap. But seriously, it's very fulfilling. It continues to be fulfilling, and it allows me to do the other work that I think is important, whether that be being politically active or philanthropic activities mm-hmm. that that I do. That is one of the byproducts of putting the right points on the board in the in the real estate business so you're still active and again i'm going to paraphrase because it makes you happy that's right i got it that's pretty simple how do you measure success i I think that that again is a a tough question that that has a lot of aspects and i i'm sure 
after we talk about this today, I'll go home and I'll think, gee, I forgot to mention to Kyle this or that that, that really goes it's into that. Good. But I, I think feeling that you have done your personal best, that you have challenged yourself to do more than others th- certainly assumed was was possible and perhaps then you yourself thought was possible at times and to do so in a way that does not compromise principle that operates with the highest standards of of ethics and fair treatment and i i think one of the things my mom really kind of drilled into me encouraged me about was not just that adage of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but to do for others more hmm. than you would even have or expect others to do for you. And, and that kind of always seeking the personal best. I'm the kind of person that really competes with myself more than with others. I, I measure my success by am I doing things better than I, I did before? Did I outthink? Did I outact? Did I outwork? what I had done in the past, not did I do more than the other guy. Have you ever, have you had periods of your, of your life where you felt like, whether it's weeks or months or perhaps longer, but where you felt like you were falling short of that aspiration where you say, Hey, my motivation or, or how I, how I define success is being the absolute best version of myself or uh, being better today than I was just, have you ever had periods of your, of your life where you, just felt like you were in a rut or you fell short and how did you kind of snap yourself out of it? The first part of the answer is every day that I, I feel like there's more I could do. I, I think I read once that Einstein said the average human uses about 10% of their computing power. And so if, if that has any close to accuracy, we all can think better than we, we did even on our best day. So I, th- I think I'm always of that mindset. It doesn't get me down too often that, gee, I didn't do as much as I could have. I could have accomplished more. I could have thought better. Today, it doesn't necessarily get me down, but it keeps me motivated and challenged to keep working for that personal best. But yes, there are certainly times when things aren't going well for a, a period of time, and it challenges your conviction. It challenges your confidence that that things will get better, that this is the long-run bet. When I was looking at the checkbook and saying we can't make all of our, our bills this week, that was that by itself, particularly when you want to be sure that you're treating everybody better mm-hmm. than you treat yourself. That, make that's sure a that challenge. Ch- the check clears. Part of the reason I ask the question is uh, I speak for myself is most people, I think you get into ruts in your life and you're just like, how do I snap out of it? Or how do I find the motivation to go do that, to start a business or lose weight or whatever it is that any, any one, you know, audience member, listener to this podcast, maybe, you know, just looking for something to help kind of kickstart their motivation, kickstart their fire. And, you know, I think sometimes from the outside, you look at someone like yourself, someone who's achieved great things within their arena and you, you go to this place where like, oh, well, they never feel like this. Like they, they never are down or they never, you know, they, every day they get the most out of themselves. And and if I heard you correctly, like, that's not true. In fact, almost every day I, you know, I sit there and I say, gosh, I could have done more. And, and so when we have those times, when we have to kind of recharge, refuel the tank, 
I think most of us find that having some alone time, I'm not sure everybody, some people need the, the crowd to get that recharge going. I personally need to have some alone time and I need to retreat, if not physically, at least mentally, uh, to clear my thought and to try and find new ways. I personally find sort of philosophical and spiritual contemplation to be really important to me. And I think different people have different ways of having that recharge, but to, to rethink, maybe reboot is a, is a really, you know, when you're, when your device isn't working properly and the only thing you can get to make it work properly is to shut it off and then reboot it, we're probably wired similarly. similarly. Well, you got a great place for that on that west-facing beach in Maui, but what are some practical, maybe just actual steps that in terms of rebooting or contemplating it, advice you would have for a listener rechar- to, to recharge that's worked for you over the years? I think Part of it is to put things in perspective. Gee, this deal that just fell apart on me. In, in, the, in the greater scheme of things, whether it's in my life or it's in my family's life or in even a broader sense in the, in this, in the evolution of the universe, how important is that, that one individual deal closing or transaction? And we would all recognize that it has virtually no significance. Mm -hmm. The significance is in what am I doing to contribute to sort of the the universal advancement, my own personal advancement and the universal advancement. And this one transaction that's got me down, this one relationship that isn't working right and we're just butting heads, whatever it is, it just doesn't have significance in, in the greater and uh, scheme of things. So what is it that I need to, to rethink? And whether it's to walk away from that deal or to approach it differently or to, to be the one with the humility to say, hey, we're not seeing eye to eye on this. I'm going to back off of my position and let's rethink it. Whatever those things are, that's what rebooting means to me. I think they call that a perspective, right? And it's definitely something that I've noticed is coming with, with age, uh, but I can't necessarily sit here and say I had it when I was 22 years old. Have you noticed more perspective with time or, or was that just so, something you always had? It, it, I think for every one of us, regardless of where, how quickly we adopted some perspective, it, it has to get greater with experience, right? Because you have a greater body of, of knowledge yeah. and, and experience with those kind of things. When it's your first deal, if it's going bad, it's the only deal. When it's one of a thousand transactions, you've been you've been to that dance before. Yeah, experience, and you've gone through that emotional spectrum of like, oh my gosh, this is the end. My life is over. I'm I'm ruined. And then you know, whether it's a week or month or year later, you're like, oh, I'm actually not. And then you've gone through it multiple times. You get to a point yeah, where, okay, like, well, so think yeah. about it. The experience that we've all had it at the age of probably where every one of our listeners is today is the first time you had your heart broken. Mm -hmm. The first time somebody said no when you wanted, you liked them and you wanted them to like you back. The first time Jim said, no, Kyle, I'm not hiring you for that assignment. Yeah, that was a tough one. I'm just joking. (laughs) But but how many times then in, in, as time goes on, you say, 
man, yeah, I'm, that wasn't a big deal. No, no, and, and, yeah. I'll be okay, but I need to get better. That's what I would say. Isn't there a country song that says sometimes you thank God for unanswered prayers? Yes, absolutely. Speaking of Nashville, I want to pivot a second. You know, you've been in the business a long time. And so you, you, you do have perspective in, 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 as it relates to the question I'm about to ask. And you've seen a lot of professionals in the space and commercial real estate and, and obviously with your relationships in other industries. What, in your opinion, is it that sets incredibly high achievers apart from, from others? Like over the course, and again, speaking for yourself, but also you've met a lot of others. Like what, what seems to be the common trait or co- common mentality or mindset in people who are just insanely driven and accomplish great things versus everyone else? As I've looked at people who've had great career success, they're really, they are very diverse individuals. They definitely don't fall into a single mold. But if you're looking for a common denominator, I would really think that it has to be that mindset of don't give up. You know, as Jimmy Valvano said, mm-hmm. don't give up, don't ever give up. And, and that is really what I've seen be a common characteristic among every career successful person. That they I just know. never quit. Right. So if they fail, they just get back up and keep going. And what, in the face of whatever obstacle there is, and, and for most of us, they seem almost, not quite, but almost insurmountable sometimes, and yet we're going to climb that mountain. We're going to get over the top. And I think, as we said earlier, success is 99% failure. I've heard people say that. I'm not sure I really believe it's quite that that big of ratio, but very few people that have achieved great success did so without having a pretty significant body of failure in their work. Now, I'm going to ask the opposite of the question, and and part of this is, you know, you have a, a shoot over 500 people at Continental, and again, like I said earlier, I know a lot of your teammates over there and very good relationships with very talented humans, but it was, you know, it's in order to get to the team you have now, you had to go through, I'm sure, experience people that you've hired where it just didn't, didn't work. And, and so the opposite of the question is, and again, in a broader context of, of just people you've, you've been able to, to see or, or watch or witness over the, over the years in the industry, what, what are the common traits, common attributes in, in the people who, who just don't go on to achieve or don't get to where they want in life? Like what, what is a commonality you see in, in, in them? One of the things that I think people that don't achieve what they've wanted to, what they've set out to, is when they point to others or other circumstances being responsible for their mistakes or their failures or things not going the right way. And so personal responsibility is definitely a characteristic of people who succeed in both their personal lives as well as their professional lives. And the opposite is probably a pretty common characteristic of people who don't meet the the goals or the things they'd like to achieve. Personal responsibility, what do you call it? personal agency. We we talk about something similar as just like no victim mentality, right? right? What what is it about why why do you think they have that? Why do you think and again, maybe a lot of people may 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 suffer from that lack of personal responsibility. Where do you think that comes from? Well, there are probably uh, as many re- 
sources as there are mm. people that a lot of that, books written about that it that sure. do it. But part of it is society today. Yeah. Part of it is society that, and I think it's an easy button. This happened because of that. It's crushing to your ego to think that a mistake or a failure is your own responsibility instead of somebody else's. So you have to have your ego in check, for one thing. But as a society, we have have come to allow victimhood to be a pretty pretty popular Yeah, somebody's experience. doing something to you. I heard Condoleezza Rice speak last week. What a wonderful yeah, and a, accomplished human being she yeah. is. And she made that specific comment that her father made it very clear to her early on in life that you are never a victim. You you take your circumstances and you turn them into your own successes. It's tough to get votes that way though. Hey, if you're if your life isn't where you want it, it's your fault and you control the outcome versus, you know, the candidate you're running against goes, Hey, everything that isn't the way you want in life, it's because someone's victimizing you and I'm here to fix it. Right. Which is, as I said, that the easy button. That that takes away the 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 personal responsibility is in is or the lack thereof as an easy button. But in the end, I don't think that we as human beings are really wired to take the easy route. And so I think it I I really believe it is a, a cycle in time and that people will recognize the the value, the personal value in taking responsibility. I share your optimism. I, 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 you know, if you study history just within this country, there's these cultural phases, you know, they kind of come in and out. So hopefully this one is on its way out, but sooner rather than later would be nice. But, uh, but yeah. And, and again, even if you don't share the same political beliefs, I have certainly a lot of people that I know who don't share my political beliefs, but I think most of those people do share the idea that personal responsibility is a hallmark to not just individual achievement, but collective achievement as a as a nation, as a society. Yeah, and you, it, it, anytime you you achieve something like truly you, especially when it's hard, it, it, we spoke about these words earlier, it brings tremendous fulfillment and satisfaction. And and I think within those two words, you combine them, and it spells happiness. Often, you know. How would you just? How would you describe? You know, you talk about beliefs, but uh, at least in terms of how you approach your life, how would you describe your mentality to somebody else? My mom used to say to me, "You only experience what you hold in your own consciousness," and it it really is is true. I don't know what's in your consciousness except perhaps what you share with me, and that may not be what is really in your in your consciousness. I know what is in my consciousness. And so I can change my experience by changing the way that I look at the world outside and try to see beyond sometimes the outward appearances. Uh, the analogy I always used to give my kids is that 500 years ago, everyone was convinced that the sun revolved around the earth. And the outward appearances proved, you know, seemed to prove that fact. And it was heresy to say anything different. And it took some brave souls to challenge that and then back it up with the, the physics to, to prove it. And today, none of us imagine that the 
sun revolves around the earth, but yet the physical appearances would would belie that. So I, I really think that it is really a case of be responsible for what goes into your thinking and how you look at the world, how you frame problems, and uh, how you operate relationships. And so your mentality of, of, again, summarizing being responsible, would you say that that was a primary driver or had a major effect on the profession, professional success you've had? Absolutely. Absolutely. I That probably is a characteristic that most people would use to describe me, whether I always liked it or not. You know, when you're a teenager, being called the responsible one isn't necessarily yeah. the the most uh, desirable attribute. Yeah, that mean that means you got the hard jobs. It's like, well, we can we can we know he'll he'll get it done. He's the responsible one. How how has that? And I know you had mentioned your 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 mom had a big effect on your mentality. But how is how has your your mindset changed over the years? I've certainly become more patient with a lot of things. I I'm not so much of that. Grant me the the patience to, uh, the, the strength to change the things I can, the patience mm-hmm. to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference, or however that quote goes. I think you nailed it. I'm pretty much somebody who has never had the patience for the things that I, I couldn't change. But I have become tol- more tolerant and willing to recognize that competing perspectives are as valuable as my own. They may not be right for me. They may not be the things I want to pass along to my family or to my colleagues, but they have every right to exist just as mine do. And so that tolerance, I think, is something that I've learned. I know that's always been a big thing for you at Continental. Was, it was everyone having the opportunity to share their perspective or even share an opinion. I know you'll, you'll make the decision, but, but that's a big thing culturally at Continental. Yeah, we, we actually use the term debate and challenge or disagree and commit. We want to be an organization where everyone feels comfortable disagreeing and debating the issues. But then once a decision is made, we expect everyone to commit to doing everything in their power to make that decision successful. How would you or how, how are you going to know when you've reached the pinnacle of success for you? Ooh, uh, I don't think there is such a thing. You just keep moving the goalposts? I don't think there is. You, you keep moving the goalpost. I, I'm not good at celebrating the victories, Kyle. I want to go on to what the next challenge you're like, you're is. Like the, so I've actually... The Nick, the Nick Saban of development, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, and celebrating victories is important. Yeah. It's very important to varying degrees for different people. And so I've actually said to people in our organization, I'm lousy at celebrating the victories, so you need to take responsibility of that because otherwise we'll just roll past it and people are going to say, hey, wait a second, don't we need to have a little celebration here? And so we do that. We've gotten better at celebrating the victories. But for me, it's then it really is about viewing the next goal down the highway. And that goal may not be within the career that I currently have. It may not be in the profession I have. I don't know when that goalpost may change to other things, and I certainly do other things. Today, I have the luxury of being able to do multiple things. Oh, I was going to talk about the other things in a second, but you don't ever just sit on the balcony looking at the water, crack a cold Diet Coke, you know, and say, you know, when you have a big closing, take a moment. I do, 
And then I say, <laughs> what's okay, the next what's one? Next? What's next? Uh, a couple seconds to take it in. What is next? What is next for you? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to my term as chair of the NMHC, the National yeah. Multi-Housing Council. That starts in January. Congratulations! Big shoes to step into. Yes. Our current chairman is extremely capable and has been a great leader for the organization, but it will be fun to participate in the next phase for the organization and for our industry. I'm finding a number of things that, that we really, that my family and I, want to be active and supporting in, whether it's my hometown, which we're working to, I don't want to say revitalize, but increase the vitality of that little hometown that had the roots of the organization. So I'm spending a lot of time on that, spend time on child welfare matters that are important to me and to my family. One of the coolest things I've ever done was you and I, you were kind enough to invite Alana and I out to a fundraiser. I think it was in Beverly Hills for Whole Child, and there was a acoustic concert from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yes. So that was the coolest thing. But, uh, <laughs> I remember you coming to that. Oh, right? that was awesome. But yeah, I know you're very involved in that uh, as board chairman. Yes, Whole Whole Child International goes into developing countries and changes the way that childcare is provided to improve the emotional health of the the children in those childcare facilities. And it's really been groundbreaking. And so any I've been on the board for 15 years and chairman for it, most of that time. And, and you, do that, you do that with the Royals. Who was it? Um, right. Yeah, the, the founder of the organization is Lady Karen Spencer, whose husband, Earl Spencer, the Earl of Spencer, Charles, is the brother to Princess Diana. That's right. So, but they're, they're wonderful people who are very committed to advancing the emotional health of children around the world. That's awesome. Anything else? I don't want to say in your spare time because you don't have spare time, but anything outside of real estate that you're focused on right now? Well, the most of our, and one of the things that, that financial success or some degree of it allows you to do is if even if you can't devote your time, you can help financially with mm-hmm with activities that you think are worthwhile. And so we support a number of educational activities. We support a number of scholarships in Wisconsin and at my two alma maters. So that's that's key. And my, my wife is an artist, and so she mm-hmm. likes to support arts activities and arts education. We support a program in the islands in Hawaii that is an after-school program for a lot of latchkey kids who are able to stay at school and have art programs that the public schools have eliminated out of budget cuts. And so we supported four schools and after school art program until their parents pick them up late in the day. Those are the kind of things we like to do. I know, I know, I know you and Andrea are very active in that space. Well, let me, let me close up here. What, did, what advice would you have for, for listeners of at least this podcast, either personally or professionally, to achieve the things or milestones that, that they, they think they want to in life? Well, first of all, you know, I've, I appreciate the physical things that, that one can have that often comes with career success. But I, I think that should be viewed as a byproduct rather than an end goal. I, I just don't think that being focused on what it is you can have personally is the right gas in the tank to sustain 
activity. It's what what can you do to make yourself better? What can you contribute to other people being better? What for us right now? I think I talked about it a little bit with you. We we use a term at Continental, infinitely sustainable. What are the things that we can do? What are the decisions that we make that aren't just going to address near-term issues, but frame all of our decisions with how does this contribute to the infinite sustainability of the organization, of what we're trying to achieve, of the industry? So I, and, but I would go back to I think everyone should be challenging themselves to be a better version of themselves each day. And that incremental progress rarely leads to failure. It ultimately leads to success. Is there a specific resource you'd recommend that they check out or read or listen to or something that's helped you over the years? You know, anything that, that you read that isn't just an entertaining read, I'm, I'm as much as anybody like a good Netflix series on a, oh, yeah. you know, on some CIA. Gu- guilty case. pleasures, right. But, but it really is, what are the experiences that others have had that, you know, Jim Collins has written, written some great books. And one of the things I never would have learned about was Amundsen's venture to the South Pole if I hadn't read one of Jim Collins' books that talks about the the disciplined battle that Amundsen undertook to reach the South Pole, and they call it the 20-mile march. And so I would suggest that people look that up and find out what the 20-mile march is all about because it has really good application to, to business careers. Well, I know you're a very disciplined person, speaking of discipline. Almost the last question. Last question, like if you had one adjective or description that you would want someone else to use to describe Jim Schlamer, what would that be? He respected every individual. People ask about that continental creed that we have that talks about being better than we've ever done before and, and being doing things better than they're done anywhere else. But in the end, what it comes down to, if I were to distill it to a single sentence, is respect for the individual. Because if you respect everyone with whom you interact, you're always going to seek to be the best you can be because you respect yourself. You want to be as good as you can possibly be. You don't want to settle for getting by. If you respect the people that you interact with, with your family, your vendors, your customers, you're going to do the very best and you're always going to do it with integrity because you would never operate without integrity if you're truly respecting the people that you interface with. So ultimately, if people would just say he was respectful of everyone that he interacted with, that would be a great compliment. Last question. It's a a big one. How are the Packers going to do this year? Ooh, that is a tough question. Perhaps the toughest one you've asked for before. You know, we had, there's no reason to think we can't do a threefer. And we, we transitioned from, from Favre, who was kind of an unknown, to Rogers, who I know is a friend of yours and did a great job for us. And we all admire and appreciate what Aaron Rodgers did for Green Bay. And there's no reason to believe that Jordan Love can't follow in that tradition. That is a very optimistic view. You are correct. There is no reason to think he can't. It's just, it's almost four decades of incredibly high quarterback play up there. And like I said, I just spent the last two days in Green Bay, and and that fan base is unlike any other. Obviously, I grew up in Cleveland, so 
you know, the Packers and the Browns, I, I get to have two teams, but both those fan bases, but Green Bay, it's just to have had the sustained success over the last three and a half decades is incredible. But, you know, they, they're still, uh, there's, there's such good people up there. They still have such humility. And, you know, I was talking to, you know, our cab driver, I was talking to the server and, you know, they just, they have such great perspective on football. It's such a unique town. You know, it really is incredible. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's quintessential American. It's, it's uh, when you, when you described your, your hometown, it's just like, I still think of like a Green Bay, you know. Right. So everybody, everybody knows each other, yeah. but. And, and the Packers fans are in it for the long haul. They are. You know, we've had dry, long, dry periods, and yet the, the, 80s, the fan, yeah. was, fan base was as 70s supportive 80s, then. yeah as it is when we're in the championship race. One of the guys said, he's like, well, you know, I can't do the accent. You know, <laughs> we've had a good run. So, you know, if we have a couple years, uh, you know, I figured uh, that's okay. You know, that was a pretty good yeah, accent you yeah, did there, So guys. I've spent a lot of time. A little time bit of there. Fargo, a little bit of Green yeah, Bay mixed Yeah, in. that's true. <laughs> but uh, such great people. Jim, you're, you're great people. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for always inspiring me to do more and be better and and i know you're not you're gonna keep going hard so i gotta keep going hard and look forward to nice dinner at spago at the four seasons in wailea next time so thank you so much for coming down to nashville and spending well, time with kyle me. I, I look forward to continuing to witness great success from your organization and the people that you inspire to be better every single day and uh, so there's no limit to that either i look forward to watching it. Right. Thanks, thanks so much. Here we go awesome. back. This is the moment tonight.